Jeremiah chapter 48. As we continue our journey through the book of Jeremiah, we're almost done. I have 52 chapters, and we come now to a section in the in the book where in chapter 46, uh, he starts talking about the judgment of the nations. And so up to this point, for the most part, the book of Jeremiah is predominantly a word that is written as a judgment to Judah. And so a lot is there, a lot of the character of God, a lot of the judgments, unfortunately, that they would experience because of the fact that they didn't uh, serve the Lord. Um, but um, now we come to this place where the nations themselves are going to be judged as well. And in Jeremiah chapter 48, we're actually going to cover the judgment of the nation of Moab. And so when you think of a, of a nation being judged, think about that for a second, like an entire nation, like we're talking about New York, Los Angeles, you know, uh, Tallahassee, you know, El Monte, you mean every, all the different cities we're going to see are, are, are named in this chapter. And so, you know, from coast to coast, uh, north, south, the entire nation being judged. I, I wonder sometimes, like, how people feel about that. You know, I think there are, unfortunately, some Christians who, like, they're like, yeah. You know, it's crazy, uh, this police officer that was uh, killed, he was just sitting in his car, and someone came and shot him in a cowardly way, and from what I understand, there were individuals celebrating that. You know, God will judge, because justice has to be served, uh, the blood of the innocent babies, all the unrighteous things that are going on in our, in our nation, but... Um, we shouldn't we shouldn't rejoice over that. And as a matter of fact, before we dive into the chapter, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, as a matter of fact, I think the the title is entitled "Makes Jesus Weep." And I don't know if you knew this or not, but there are three times in Scripture that that Jesus wept. Uh, one is over in John chapter eleven, verse thirty five, when his good friend Lazarus died. And so obviously um, he wept. His friend uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus were good friends that he would stay with them in Bethany um, when he died. The Bible talks about that. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but it may be the most profound verse in the Bible. And then there's another passage over in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, that speak of Jesus crying as well. Now that's a little different because... um, that's probably in reference to when he was on Calvary, maybe an, on Gethsemane. But when he was there, uh, we know that Jesus, Jesus cried vehemently, it says there in Hebrews chapter 5. And so he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. But the one that I want to take you to, if you would, um, go over to Luke chapter 19. We'll go back to Jeremiah 48 in just a second. But here in Luke chapter 19, in verse 41, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, 
For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, Jesus is looking over the city of Jerusalem. It's such a beautiful view. Uh, We've been there a few times. And when he saw the city, he just wept over the city. He wept over it because he knew that it wasn't much longer in the year 70 AD where they would be surrounded by the Romans, led by that general Titus, and 1.2 million Jews would die. And and why would they die? Uh, as he kind of says it right here, but it, he doesn't say it like the way that we might interpret it. They died because they rejected Jesus. You know, I, I saw Teresa up here doing a worship. I don't know if you guys noticed her sweatshirt. What it said? I think it said, "Y'all need Jesus." Did you guys see that that that, that sweatshirt? <laughs> and um, it's true. It's true. You know, President Biden needs Jesus. Uh, Governor Newsom needs Jesus. I know these guys are bad. I understand that. Maybe you're here and you like them. Most uh, people don't like them because of the fact that as Christians, you know, they go against uh, the scriptures. They go against the values that we have. But the, the thing that I wonder about is does anyone, like of all these Christian critics, weep over them? Does anyone weep over their coming judgment? Uh, I have a feeling a lot of Christians would celebrate you know, and that just goes to show you how far we are from the heart of God. You know, we've been praying lately, and one of the goals the Lord's been telling me is that I may know Him, and uh, that I may be like Him, and that I may help others know Him, and that I may help others be like Him, right? Christ. So you want to know Christ? You want to know Christ? Oh, yeah, He's God in the flesh, uh, anthropomorphic, you know, the theanthropic being. He's our, our Redeemer, and uh, He's Deity, and, you know, yeah, that's true. It's good to know His nature, but what about His character? His character was that He wept over sinners, the judgment that would come upon them. Now, I, I, I know that, you know, you might be wondering, well, what has that got to do with me? I'm just, just a question, like, when was... The last time we wept over those who we knew were going to be judged? When was the last time we wept over someone that was doomed and destined for hell? You know, because not that we can force people into the kingdom, but C.H. Spurgeon, he said uh, that winners of souls must be weepers for souls. And I, and I know some of you guys, you already are there. You do cry. You do weep. But I wonder about some Christians. They they just they don't they hate people. They they hate them because they don't you know they're not saved and they just want them to get judged and smashed by God and 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 yeah God is going to judge He will but right here when the Lord was looking over Jerusalem and He knew what would happen to them. He wept. I was talking to a guy recently. I love this guy. He might be watching the live stream. Hey, how you doing? Um, <laughs> uh, and so I got to say this. I got to say this. You know, he's a Calvinist. I don't know if you guys know what Calvinists are, 
But a Calvinist is an individual who believes that God destines some for heaven and some for hell. And if he destines you for hell, then there's nothing you can do about it. And so I asked him, you know, and he's like an elder in the church, and he's supposed to know a lot of stuff. And I said, well, what do you think about this passage right here? It doesn't look like Jesus is saying, well, I'm sorry you can't go to heaven, but you're just not chosen. No, they didn't choose, and it broke his heart. So as we're getting into the, the, the judgment of God in the book of Jeremiah, I, I pray that we would check our hearts. I pray that we would um, see this. And we're going to see a couple of times in this chapter where it appears that God himself is weeping as well. And, and, and one last thing, you know, because when you understand that the judgment of God is so close, I mean, it is so close. You see all the signs in, in the world today. Uh, yesterday, uh, one of my friends, he sent me a, a video on, on AI, artificial intelligence, and uh, just the, the different things that I believe. I think that there's probably going to be a connection there uh, to what's going on in the book of Revelation chapter 13. Anyways, other people were asking me questions about, you know, um, how we're moving towards a cashless society. We're so close. And just the things that are going on, even with the children, you wonder, where are the children? Why, why are so many children um, being sex trafficked now? And, and uh, what's going to, as a result of that, do you think God's going to take this much longer? No. So, so judgment is coming. We have to be ready but my question for you is, are you, are you interested in anyone else being ready? So here's the thing. You're going to look at a map, and we'll show it later. Not, not yet. But Edom was right next to um, Judah. They were, right, they were neighbors. And so the Lord has just been really challenging me. And Henry is talking about these truth and treat flyers, you know, inviting people to um, the harvest, to the truth and treat event. Why? So that they get saved. So that there would be hope for them. Uh, and again, do, do we do this? When was the last time you invited someone to church service? When was the last time you shared the Lord with somebody? I think personally, I think we should be doing this every single day of our life. I mean, what's life about? Isn't that what it's about? You know, so I want to encourage you, and, and believe it or not, one of the things I've learned also is that sometimes people are like, well, Manny, you're getting legalistic, and you're, you know, you're telling me that I've got to share the Lord with somebody every single day. No, I'm telling you you've got to share the Lord with two people every day. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I mean, maybe you will, but this is what I'm saying is that, is that in order to be a disciple, you have to be disciplined. And just because something becomes a routine, it doesn't make it a rut. D.L. Moody had these personal convictions in his heart, like, I want to live, I want to share with somebody every single day of my life. I, and I think that's kind of a cool one. Now, again, not to be legalistic, I'm not saying you got to do that, but he had that in his heart, and one day he, was, uh, he went to bed, and the thought came to him, he said, I haven't shared with anybody today. So he got out of bed. You know how hard that is, because usually when you're there, you're tired, you know? 
But he got out of bed and he went, just found somebody on the street. He grabbed him by the shoulders and he asked him, do you know Jesus? I pray that we have that kind of heart. I love that shirt that my sister was wearing. Y'all need Jesus. I mean, we should get shirts like that, huh? And that we're just sharing the Lord like all the time. Because when I read this and this whole judgment and God gives details, ah, it just breaks my heart. And so let's go to Jeremiah 48. Notice what we read in verse 1. It says, Against Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Now, it's interesting how it's against Moab, but, you know, Jeremiah is talking from the standpoint of the God of Israel. And you're like, well, how does that work? Well, the God of Israel is the God of all nations, right? So back in those days, they had the local deities. Uh, for Moab, their primary god was uh, Chemosh. Um, but, you know, um, eventually uh, the scriptures went out. We learned that there's not like plurality of gods. There's not local deities. There's only one god. He's the only god, the Lord God, the God of hosts. And that's why he will judge uh, Moab. And so Moab uh, is an interesting nation. They were the descendants of Lot. You might remember he had that incestuous relationship. Uh, the Bible talks about that in the book of Genesis, chapter 19, verse 37. And so Moab, we have a map here. I guess at that point we can show you the map. And so you'll see over here on the left side is the kingdom of Judah. And then you have the Dead Sea, and then you have the kingdom of Moab right there. And so Ammon also, which is north of Moab, was also a part of the descendants of Lot. When the Jews came to Israel uh, on the initial onset, they actually had a portion of Moab. You might remember the two kings that were conquered, and there was a couple of tribes, two and a half tribes that stayed on um, the east side of the, 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 the Dead Sea. And we have a map of that as well, I think. If uh, Yeah, you can see it there. So there you see the tribe of Reuben. They uh, had a portion of Moab at one time. And so, you know, when you look at this, you, you kind of see, like I said earlier, even though there's the Dead Sea in between them, that they're their neighbors, and I, I was talking to Shelly, we were praying actually earlier today for our neighbors, and I was just thinking, Lord, you, you put them there, you know, for us to, to reach out to. And I would say, I, things are probably different now. When I was growing up, everybody kind of knew their neighbors. Now, I, I think there's a little less of that. Some of you guys are really friendly and you know all your neighbors, but um, may it really, you know, Think about that, that God has them there and you have the answer to sin and salvation. And so ask the Lord to give you eyes to evangelize. Lord, how can I win them to you? So, so Moab is an interesting nation. Uh, they were actually a little bit more uh, fertile than Israel. Now, Israel is a beautiful nation. They're well watered. Uh, in one sense, Israel is kind of like us. And so, 
you know, you see some similarities there um, in Southern California weather. But but Moab, they didn't have the, the big river. They had the Arnon River, but they had more rain. So when it was time to, for, for rain, it came down in its seasons. And Moab was well-known. They were wealthy, and they actually produced a lot of wine. As a matter of fact, when Israel went through their famines... Um, they would go to Moab sometimes because there was bread there. And so we're going to see that this nation was in one sense a a blessed nation. But here we see now the judgment uh, against Moab. Thus says the Lord uh, of hosts, the God of Israel, woe to, to Nebo. And that's a mountain. That's also a city there in Moab for it is plundered. Um, the Babylonians would come and they would take away their wealth. Kurdithim is shamed and taken. The high stronghold, which would be their fortress, shamed and dismayed. No more praise of Moab in Heshbon. They have devised evil against her. Come and let us cut her off as a nation. You also shall be cut down, O madmen. Now, it's interesting how it uses the word madmen there. You're thinking, is that is he talking about some guys that are kind of off their rocker or something? Um, this is a city. It's actually a city. I, I, I thought that was funny. Anyways, um, it says, The sword shall pursue you. A voice of crying shall be from Horonim, thundering and great destruction. You know, we read that, that, that in verse 4 that, that Moab is destroyed. And, and this word destroyed is found four times in the chapter. It's also found in verse 8, in verse 18, and verse 42. So one of the interesting things, their God, and we're going to talk more about their God later, uh, Chemosh, uh, the, the, some uh, scholars believe that their God's name meant destroyer. So here, the Lord God, the God of gods, the King of kings, we're going to see him identified here, he is going to destroy this nation. There's no Moabites around now. Now, I'm not saying there aren't any physical descendants of them scattered here and there. There there is. We're going to see that later as we close the chapter. But as far as Moabites and Moab, it's gone. It's gone. God judged them here. It breaks my heart to read what we read here, but look at verse 4. Moab has destroyed her little ones, have caused a cry to be heard. For in the ascent of Luhith, they ascend with continual weeping. For in the descent of Horname, the enemies have heard a cry of destruction. And so, you know, I think sometimes, you know, we forget you know, these people that are out there doing their own thing, these adults that are making their own decisions, watching, well, I can watch an R-rated movie and I can watch a nude flick or whatever because I'm an adult. Yeah, but what are you doing to the kids? You know, a lot of times parents don't realize, uh, people don't realize, your kids will do what you do. You know, you go to church, they'll go to church. You give your tithes, you know, they'll give their tithes. There's, a, there's actually like a... There's an aspect of that, 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 that accountability as a leader. And so here we have the little ones identified. We mean, don't, don't forget that if you're judging the whole nation, there's a whole bunch of kids. 
they're going to suffer and the Babylonians would have no mercy. Just like the devil has no mercy on children. You know that, right? Well, for us, we're like, oh, you got to have these, you know, you got to have a heart. You, I mean, these are the kids, right? And you guys see it today. The adults that are exploiting the children, that's satanic. And so when the judgment comes to Moab, he mentions the little ones here, and it just breaks your heart that the way that, they, that they're, they're, they're crying. And, and so I will say this, that some of the little ones that were young enough, there is an, uh, an aspect where, thank God, if you're under the age of accountability, you're, you're going to go to heaven uh, Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, it talks about how God you know, didn't want to wipe out uh, Nineveh because there were some that didn't know their right hand from the left, and that's in reference to they didn't know what was right and wrong. And so um, we believe that you know, when an individual reaches the age of accountability, when they can understand maybe even you know, the, the gospel to a certain extent, that there is an age there. So that's something I did want to mention regarding the little ones but also, um, when it comes to the kids in general, just the judgment that they would experience. You know, when does a, a child reach the age of accountability? I don't know, maybe 12, maybe 13, maybe younger. But um, if, 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 if the parents are not pouring into that 10-year-old, whatever, 9-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, and they die... They won't go to heaven. You know, and so here are the Moabites. They knew about the Lord, you know, because Ruth was a Moabite. There, there was an influence there. When the Jews came out of Egypt, you know, when they came out of Egypt, um, think about that, that miracle. God, you know, you know, opened up the Red Sea. All the nations knew about that. All the nations knew about Israel coming out. They've heard of them, Right. And so, in, in, in one sense, it's kind of the same, that the Jews look back at their redemption from Egypt as we look back at the resurrection of Christ. That was their big sign for the world to see, undeniable, this is the God of gods. So there were some foreigners that were getting saved. The Moabites knew better. If they would have been saved, everything would have been different. But, you know, they rejected God. They rejected God's people. We're going to see that generally speaking. But in looking at this, we see that the, the, the part that a parent plays is huge. And so if only parents would vividly, constantly remember the responsibility we have to live the life of obedience, to live the life of love. More than likely, your kids are not going to want to follow the Lord if we don't love them with the truth. What if you beat them with the truth? You beat them with the truth? Oh, they're probably not going to serve your God. But if you love them with the truth, understanding that, that their, 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 their destiny is hanging in the balance between heaven and hell, do you really want to win them to the Lord? If only we would understand that, that, that we would do all we can to fill our children with faith in Christ so that God's word would work in them. I'll tell you what, what we have going on on Sunday nights, the Awana program, I mean, I, I, if, uh, I think every single child 
within that age range, unless it's physically impossible for a parent to bring their child, I think that they should bring their children to that. Uh, It's beautiful. The way that they're giving them the Bible, the way that they're memorizing, they're memorizing the scriptures. That's really the heart of Awana, and it's rooted in sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. You know, because you can come to a Bible study, and a lot of times people do come, and they forget everything that was said. And, you know, Manny, you know, he was talking about his neighbors or something. I, I don't remember exactly what he was talking about. But if I brought you to, here, to this sanctuary and I said, okay, memorize this verse. Put this word in your heart. Memorize it. Then, man, you've got that now, God's word, for the rest of your life. And so it is good. You know, one of the things the Bible does say, your word have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. I want to encourage all adults to, to memorize God's word. But, you know, I just pray that the parents, you know, when we look at the little ones right here, it just breaks my heart. I pray that they would understand the responsibility they have. Not that we can make them believe. I know not all children will choose Christ, even if we are the best parents in the world. But you have to admit this, right? Let's be, let's be real. Many kids will perish in part because their parents were like the Moabites. They, they didn't really show them the way. And so it needs to be a combination of teaching and loving. Loving. That's why the Bible says, speak the truth in love. You know, I look at this right here and I realize this is not small stuff. Look what it says in verse 5. And now, now again, verse 4, for Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have caused a cry to be heard. And so there's crying. For in the ascent of Luhith, they they ascend with, notice it says, continual weeping. Continual weeping. Now, now, I think contextually speaking, it's just referring to them going up, you know, and they're just, you know, they just won't stop crying. But I think when you look at the Bible, you realize that there is a place called hell and then the lake of fire where there will be continual weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Bible talks about that. In Matthew 22, verse 13, Jesus said, The king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it just, it just makes me want to do, Lord, I don't know how many days or weeks, months, or years I have left, but whatever I have left, I am giving you everything. Everything, God. My thoughts belong to you. My eyes will not look anywhere. You don't want them to look. My ears will not listen to anything that you do not want me to listen to. I won't speak a word. Lord, I'll do my best not to go anywhere or just because I do not want to in any way hinder the work that you want to do in me and through me. How can God use an individual who's not sold out and surrendered, at least not to the full capacity. And so when you think of this place uh, called hell and then the lake of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and our neighbors are, are on their way there, 
you know, and so many around us are on their way there. Just it just makes you want to, Lord, what can I do um, to win them to you? When I'm looking at judgment right here, God is going to give us the details of judgment. And so you read about it, and it can be a lot of information and history. And there's actually a lot of that in here. The Bible is so deep. It's so amazing, the imagery as well. But to me, at the end of the day, you know, you got to come away with this for two things. Number one, you might be somebody. You might be somebody on your way to hell. Someone watching online, right? And God is just saying, the only reason I'm telling you about this place The only reason I'm telling you about this judgment is because I don't want you to experience it. Because this is forever and ever and ever. So, number one, those who might hear this, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, if you're here today and you're not saved, please give your, your heart to Christ today. He loves you. He died for you. He experienced the judgment that we deserve so you don't have to have to go through this. But that is a decision that you need to make in your heart. But he loves you and he's willing for you to come to him tonight. You know, as God speaks of this judgment, notice what we read in verse 6. It says, flee, save your, your lives and be like the juniper in the wilderness Uh, That would be the bush, just a bush way out there in the wilderness. For because you have trusted in your works and your treasures, you shall also be taken. I I underlined verse 7. We're going to come back to that. And and Shema shall go forth into captivity, his priests and his princes together. And the plunderer shall come against every city. No one shall escape. The valley also shall perish and the plain shall be destroyed as the Lord has spoken Give wings to Moab that she may flee and get away, for her city shall be desolate without any to dwell in them. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from blood. And verse 10, the first part of it is pretty interesting. We'll come back to that as well. But, you know, most of the people were saying that that was in probably their only chance to run so the Babylonians were coming, and there they did not stand a chance if they stood there and fought. So run. And, and we're going to see later that some of them did escape um, the ones that God wanted, you know, but those within the, the, the land, not one escaped, not one within the land. And, and it's interesting because three times in this chapter, he uses the word because. You're going to be judged because. So here's the first one. The next two are the same. But here's the first one, verse 7, For because you have trusted in your works and your treasures, you shall also be taken. And so we see they trusted in their works and their wealth. And so maybe, you know, you guys might know some people, and they're, they're uh, you know, whatever, the, some of the people that are in the city council or the, the leaders in the city of Almani, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I talk to them all, all the time, you know, and different people that you might know. How many people do you know, they think they're good with God because of their works, because they're a moral person. They never killed anybody, never been done time in prison or whatever. You know, they're upright and an outstanding citizen. That's the problem with the Moabites. Oh, we don't need the God of Israel. We don't need that God because we're good. We have works and we have wealth. 
you know, some will trust in their wealth, and 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 for a couple of reasons, you might know some people who have a lot of money, and they actually equate that with spiritual success. I know some people; they got the house and they got all the things, the American dream, and you know, they got a little bit of religion. And they think that they're okay with God because they perceive that wealth is a, is a sign of God's blessing. And right here, he's just saying, these, the problem with the Moabites is they trusted in their works and they trusted in their wealth. Another side of the truth when it comes to money is that a lot of people will not trust God when they have the money. You know, because there, there's no desperation for God. They have everything they need. You know, they don't realize that that comes from, from God as, as well. And so a lot of the, the rich people, the people with money, that's what they trust in. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 23, though, it's hard for a rich man. So if an individual has a, a lot of money and they have the wealth, it's hard for them. But he did say three verses later in verse 26, it is possible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, but it's hard. That, that's where the Moabites were, unfortunately. They were trusting in their works, and they were trusting in their wealth. You know, Maybe there's someone watching online. Maybe there's someone here today that is, you're thinking, I don't need Jesus. You know, you, you disagree with the T-shirt that Teresa was wearing earlier. You all need Jesus. I think the word all is in there. <laughs> you know, because you're a good person. You know, and you give to charities and, you know, you're, you know, you're faithful and different things. And, and that's just, we all need them because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only way to get to heaven is to be perfect. And none of us are. Jesus was perfect. You know, and then verse 10 right here is an interesting verse. Notice what it says right there. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully. Interesting verse. Now, in context, it's in reference to Babylon. Babylon was actually doing the work of the Lord. <laughs> you know, Babylon was the one that was God was using to judge the Moabites. Uh, they would be judged, actually, um, I think it's four years after the, the Jews were judged there in Jerusalem. But um, an interesting verse, and you know, the Bible has one interpretation, many applications. Um how many people today in the world that we live in are doing the work of the Lord, but they're doing it deceitfully? I think we can think of a lot of these guys on, on television, a lot of these people, you know, uh, unfortunately, tragically, are doing the work of God deceitfully. You know, one of the most uh, r famous men and one of the most rich men is a guy by the name of Kenneth Copeland, and uh, they say he has uh, uh, $760 million. Um, he got that by fleecing the flock. He got that by telling them, give to me, you know, and, uh, and then you'll be rich. And all these old ladies are, are still there struggling in their faith. And so this guy with everything that money can buy, Kenneth Copeland, he says he's a minister of God. He thinks, he teaches that he has the same authority as God. Those words come out of his lips. For him, spiritual maturity is health, wealth, and prosperity. And, and it's interesting because he says, and if you were, um, man, I don't, don't listen, but I'm just saying this guy will actually articulate. He says, 
You must never pray uh, when you are praying according to God's will. Lord, if it's your will. He, he thinks that that's a lack of faith. He considers that uh, an absolute um, impossibility for God to answer any prayers when someone would tag it that way. And yet Jesus modeled it. Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. James taught it in James 4, verse 15. You know, don't say you're going to do this tomorrow. You have to say if the Lord wills, you'll do this tomorrow. And then John chapter 1 John 5, 14. You know, he, we know he hears our prayers according to his will. But Kenneth Copeland, so many things. He thinks we're little gods. He thinks that you can speak reality into existence. Like if you're sick... Just say, I'm not sick, I'm not sick. Just keep saying, I'm not sick until you die, you know. (laughs) Because they think, because you know how God created the universe with his words? He said, let there be light. He spoke it all into existence. He thinks that he's a little God and he can do the same thing. So he has $760 million. You know what God says about this guy? You are building up greater judgment in your day. Cursed. Cursed is the man who does the work of the Lord deceitfully. I I wish these guys would read this and God would open their eyes. Something else that's interesting about this verse right here, in in the Hebrew, this word can also be translated lax or negligently or, or lazily. Now, some of you guys, you're Bible students and you read your Bible in different translations, right? How many of you guys, you do that every once in a while, right? So you go and you check out some of the different translations and you're like, well, this one says, you know, cursed is the one who does the work of the Lord lazily or cursed is the one who does the work of the Lord negligently. And, and, And that's the truth too. I mean, how can we serve the Lord in a lazy way, you know, a little bit, yeah, if it's convenient, yeah, maybe once in a while I'll do a little something, I'll, I'll pray as you're sleeping, I mean, you name it, and, and right here, it's an interesting passage, I was reminded of Matthew 11, verse 12, it says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force, now, it's an interesting passage, because, um, you know, there's uh, there's some there's 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 things going on in the invisible realm, and we're talking about rescuing people. We're talking about uh, you know spiritual violence, not physical violence. We're not talking about you know doing things physically violently, but we're talking about a spiritual passion. And so it's not a literal force or coercion, but what Matthew 11 teaches us is that we do this by hard work and exertion. You know, the things that we're doing, I, I, I get like, convicted, especially me, because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a senior pastor, and so I don't necessarily have anybody, you know, watching over my shoulder, making sure you're praying, making sure you're studying, making sure you're thinking about things in the church and working hard and, you know, doing whatever you got to do. So I really have to make sure that I'm aware of the presence of God who's always watching me, because if not, it's easy to just put it in cruise control. But then I read a verse like this, and then God just, he just, he gets me. And cursed is the man. How accountable I am. Cursed is the one who does the work of God in a lazy way. I mean, God deserves 110%. One of my favorite quotes is by a guy named Matthew Poole. 
And, and he said this. He said, the violent take it by force. They are not lazy wishes or cold endeavors that will bring men to heaven. I think sometimes we can have the lazy wishes and the lukewarm or maybe even cold endeavors. And God says, cursed is the man who does it that way. Verse 11. It says, Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his his dregs and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remained in him and his scent has not changed. Remember, I was telling you earlier about the wine country um, and the dregs and how it would settle on, on the bottom and you would actually supposed to pour it from bottle to bottle to make sure it stayed uh, you know, fresh as it's, uh, as it's uh, you know, there fermenting. Um, but you know, Moab hadn't really been through too much. Verse 12, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I shall send him wine workers who will tip him over and empty his vessels and break the bottles. Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. And so God's just basically saying, you know, the imagery there, the judgment, you know, I think about him, you know, knocking those wine bottles over, smashing them. It's all part of the, the judgment. And they would be ashamed of their God. Now, now, Chemosh was an interesting God, a fish God. They was their national deity. Uh, according to the Moabite stone, Chemosh was associated with the goddess of Ashtoreth. And so there's a relation there. He was also thought to have been similar to uh, Baal. And also, uh, Chemosh may have been uh, similar to the Ammonite god Molech. And so you guys know that that was the god that they, uh, they offered, their, their, they sacrificed their children to. Uh, we know that that's exactly what happened in Second Kings chapter 3 and verse 27. In the days of Judah's king Jehoram, the king of Moab, faced military defeat, and the Moabite ruler took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him up as a sacrifice on the city wall. And if you ever heard of that, that, that poem, Paradise Lost, John Milton in the poem, he referred to Chemosh, and he identified him as this god uh, that they worshipped with lustful orgies. And so reminds me of what's going on in our, our country. You know, killing babies, sexual perversity. God, is, eventually it's going to be enough. And the judgment is coming. The justice is coming. You know, it's interesting to me how when you look at this right here, verse 13, Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. When the northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom, Jeroboam built an altar at Dan and Bethel. So the northern part of the northern kingdom and the southern part of the southern kingdom. And then one day in 722, the Assyrians came and they took the Israelites away captive because that God, that calf, that golden calf, could not deliver them. So the big question today for all of us, for those of you that are watching, is who is your God? I mean, what, what's your master passion? That's your God. You roll out of the bed in the morning, you wake up, and, and, and you know, you, you get that phone, that might be your God. 
Oh, man, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean I'm, I'm serious. I don't know what it is. You know, all I know, it might be the boyfriend. It might be the girlfriend. It might be the, the kids. I mean, it could be anything. It could be your job. It could be a lot of times we worship ourselves. All I know is that one day, if God is not your God, then you'll be ashamed of what you worshiped because if it's because of the fact that it was 100% impotent to deliver you. You know, we have to come to that place, you guys, and I, I'm not messing around where, you know, those eyes, those eyes, honestly, don't let them look at anything they should not look at. You can watch a, a regular TV program, and it can be PG-13, and you can just be checking out that, that, that Barbie the whole time. Do you think that's good? Seriously. Because God, God sees what we see. He does. And all I know, man, is I, I want to give God every area of my life. So my eyes, they'll, they'll bounce, but I won't expose them to that. The Lord has been showing me things lately that I'm just saying, okay, Lord, I won't, I won't, I won't even watch that because I do know this, that, that what ends up happening is that becomes, uh, unfortunately, the, the gods that can't deliver. Look at verse 14. How, how can you say we are mighty and strong men for the war? Moab has plundered and gone up from her cities. Her chosen young men have gone down to the slaughter, says the king, whose name is, notice the king's name, the Lord of hosts. These guys, they thought they were strong and mighty and buff and bad. And uh, one day, Romans 3.19 says, God will stop all the, all the mouths. Verse 16 says, The calamity of Moab is near at hand, and his affliction comes quickly. We know according to history, it actually took place in 582 B.C. So it says right here, bemoan him, all you who are around him, and all you who know his name, how the strong staff is broken, the, the beautiful rod. O daughter inhabiting Debon, come down from your glory, sit in thirst, for the plunderer of Moab has come against you. He has destroyed your strongholds. O inhabitant of Aror. See what I'm talking about? Just Later on too, he names just all the different cities. Stand by the way and watch. Ask him who flees and her who escapes. Say, what has happened? Moab is shamed, for he is broken down. Wail and cry. Tell it in Arnon that Moab is plundered. You know, why does God tell us these things? Uh, three things come to mind. Number one, we must realize God's ability to foretell the future. So this did happen. Uh, it was prophesied three years in advance by Jeremiah, who died in Egypt. And yes, eventually it did happen. So in prophecy, when you look back at prophecy, you realize God always fulfills his word. And so since he's able to do that, then he's able to foretell the future. And that means his future prophecies will come to pass. And so 25% of the Bible is prophetic. And so we got to know that a truth about God. Secondly, we must understand God's justice and holiness. That because he's God, he can't allow, he can't wink at sin. He can't allow it to not be judged. 
by his very nature, which his overriding attribute is not love. His overriding attribute is holiness. Nowhere in the Bible do you see love, love, love. You know, God is love, love, love. No, in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We need to understand that part of our theology, that that's his overriding attribute. There's only one other time in the Bible where a word is repeated three times successfully, successively, and that is in the book of Revelation where it says, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And so we got to know this again so that we don't get judged. And Lord, use my life to help people know you and help people be like you. And so we have to realize God's ability to foretell the future. We have to understand God's justice and holiness. And then number three, that we who are still alive would turn from our sins to him, that we would not suffer the same fate. Now, one thing I want to just encourage you guys in, and hopefully you take this the right way, don't play with God. Don't let it be a lukewarm relationship. I pray we would give God our heart. Verse 21, it says, And judgment has come on the plain country and all these cities right here. And when Pastor Chuck taught this, uh, he said, um, they, they don't mean anything, but uh, I'll, go, I'll just go ahead and read it. I don't think he read it either, but he's all. On Holon, on Jaza, on Metha'ah, on Debon, on Nebo, on Beth Diblathame, on Kurjathame, on Beth Gamal, on Beth Meon, on Kerioth and Basra, and all the cities of the land of Moab, far or near, notice, the horn of Moab is cut off and his arm is broken, says the Lord. Now, of course, we know the horns in the Bible are in reference to power. And just think about how you're going to fight if your arm is cut off. And so verse 26 says, Make him drunk, because he exalted himself against the Lord. Moab shall wallow in his vomit, and he shall also be in derision. For was not Israel a derision to you? Was he found among the thieves? For whenever you speak of him, you shake your head in scorn. You who dwell in Moab, leave the cities and dwell in the rocks, and be like the dove which makes her nest in the side of, sides of the cave's mouth. You know, verse 26 talks about how God, in one sense, would make him drunk. Again, here's the second because. Because Moab exalted himself against the Lord. Now, I remember a while back, a good, pretty good friend of mine, he struggled with drinking. And, um, you know, one day he came home drunk again. And rather than going upstairs and, you know, falling asleep in his bed, he fell asleep on the couch and he died choking on his own vomit. That's what God said would happen to Moab. Why? Because he exalted himself against the Lord. It was probably direct and indirect. And we saw, we see that the kings would do that. Verse 29 says, We have heard the, the pride. And that's probably the biggest word of all. Um, we don't have time to elaborate on it. But I think you guys know um, how ugly pride is. Right? That was the... Sin that caused Satan to fall, even though he was in such a beautiful setting. Um, I believe that pride is the root of all sin. And so this is what happened. He, he is exceedingly proud. 
of his loftiness and arrogance and pride and of the haughtiness of his heart. I know his wrath, says the Lord, but it is not right. His lies have made nothing right. Therefore, interesting what we read in verse 31, I will wail for Moab and I will cry out for all Moab. I will mourn for the men of Ker, Heres, O vine of Sibma. I will weep for you with the weeping of Jazer. Now, real quick, that's probably God. So just like we were talking about earlier, how Jesus wept over Jerusalem, you know, God doesn't do this without, you know, tears. And so my prayer is that as we're praying for the lost, that we would be weeping for them just as God does. It says right here that they, they reach to the sea. Your plants have gone over the sea. They reach to the sea of Jazer. The, the plunder has fallen on your summer fruit and your vintage. Joy and gladness, this is so sad, are taken from the plentiful field. And from the land of Moab, I have caused wine to fail from the wine presses. No one will tread with joyous shouting, not joyous shouting. You know, and, and, the, and the, the, the difficulty, the tragedy about this is that this is not just like they would never have joy and gladness on earth. They would never have joy and gladness ever, ever, because they would perish. We will in heaven. Life is hard for us sometimes. But, you know, we have the joy of the Lord. It's our strength. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Unfortunately, we see so many have chosen not to follow Christ. Verse 34, from the cry of, of Heshbon to Elieleh and to Jahaz, they have uttered their voice from Zoar to Horonim, like a three-year-old heifer, for the waters of Nimrim also shall be desolate. Moreover, says the Lord, I will cause to cease in Moab the one who offers sacrifices in the high places and burns incense to his gods. Therefore, my heart shall wail like flutes for Moab, and like flutes my heart shall wail for the men of Kir Heres. Therefore, the riches they have acquired have perish and that the flutes are just kind of in reference to the funerals i mean this is when they would mourn at the funerals and so that's god's heart it says in verse 37 for every head shall be bald and every beard clipped and all the hands shall be cut and on the loins of sackcloth a general lamentation on all the housetops of moab and in its streets for I have broken Moab like a vessel in which is no pleasure, or basically that means that no one wants Moab, says the Lord. They shall wail how she is broken down, how Moab has turned her back with shame. So Moab shall be a derision, a ridicule, a mockery, because they were doing that to Israel, and a dismay to all those about her. You know, there's a book out there, and I know we're running out of time, but there's a really fascinating book. I can't remember the title. I have to get it out of my library. But it, what has happened to all the nations that have directly come against Israel? Genesis 12.3 says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Right here, Moab was, was one of those nations. That's part of why uh, this is what they're going through. If you're writing notes, just in case you're interested, you might want to look up Isaiah 34, 
1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 8. You can read it later. There God talks about how he's going to judge the nations because of the way they treated Israel. So it's an interesting thing. We have to understand this. This is what the Bible says. Uh, Are we in verse 40? Okay. For thus says the Lord, Behold, one shall fly like an eagle and spread his wings over Moab. Karioth is taken and the strongholds are surprised. The mighty men's hearts in Moab on that day shall be like the heart of a woman in birth pangs. And Moab shall be destroyed as a people. Again, this is the third time he uses the word because... Because he exalted himself against the Lord. And I just, you guys, this is what our nation is doing now. This is what our nation is doing now. Absolutely no regard for God or his word. They make themselves God. It says in verse 43, Fear and the pit and the snare shall be upon you, O inhabitant of Moab, says the Lord. He who flees from the fear shall fall into the pit, and he goes out of the pit, gets out of the pit, shall be caught in the snare. For upon Moab, upon it, I will bring the year of their punishment, says the Lord. Those who fled stood under the shadow of Heshbon because of exhaustion, but a fire shall come out of Heshbon, a flame from the midst of Sihon, and shall deliver the brow of Moab, the crown of the head of the sons of Tumul. Woe to you, O Moab, the people of Chemosh. Perish, for your sons have been taken captive and your daughters captive. But then notice how God closes. Yet I will bring back the captives of Moab in the latter days, says the Lord. Thus far is, in other words, here ends the judgment of Moab. And so the nation of Moab, um, historically speaking, they lost their national identity when they were overrun by the Arabians from the east. Yet what we find right here that is as a race and as individual descendants, uh, there would be uh, some that would survive as a remnant. And some even believe perhaps maybe some type of reunification in the millennial kingdom. So different uh, thoughts on that. But I do know this, that this nation, as of time, on this side of time, is is destroyed. And so I don't know, like, we're going to close now, right? I don't know what a study like that does to you. Some people are like, I am never going back to that church again. (laughs) You know, um, But as we're reading 48 and 49 and 50 and 51, these are all judgments of nations. Um, The the intention uh, of this chapter is, I think, like, purify my life, God. Purify my life. and, And, Lord, make me, like, really, really usable so that I can help others not not experience this. And it kind of reminds me of a sermon that was preached a long time ago. And when you get a chance, I encourage you to look it up. Back in 1741, July 8th, uh, Jonathan Edwards, he preached a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, Jonathan Edwards, he he was an individual uh, used by God to bring about a revival, 
the great awakening. We're talking about great awakening. We're talking about bars being closed. We're talking about churches being filled. We're talking about government, the whole, the, the whole nation experiencing a revival. And, and so he's preaching a lot, of, a lot of different things, but he was not a, afraid to talk about the flames, about the fires of hell. And if you read his sermon, it's crazy how he was, just, he, you could picture like just someone dangling over the flames and the imagery that he used in his sermon. And, and history tells us that it wasn't like eloquent. It wasn't really all that, you know, passionate. And, you know, he just read his sermon. And as he read his sermon of, about uh, sinners in the hand, uh, hands of an angry God, um, man, just outcries began to come out from the congregation. You got to read the, the history. It was a church that was dead. It was a church where revivals were going on in other places, but not in that church. They were resistant of the work of the Holy Spirit, completely resistant to that work. And so Jonathan Edwards goes in there one day and he's taught, he just teaching, preaching this sermon. Now remember this, Psalm 711 that's an easy one to remember, huh? Psalm 7 11. <laughs> God is angry with the wicked every day. So, like I said earlier, he loves everybody, but if you're not going to accept his son, oh man, now you're facing the wrath of the Lamb. And so, as he's preaching this sermon, again, intended to tell the truth and at the same time intended to save souls, uh, it was just amazing what ended up happening. This dead church just began uh, to just just caught fire and um, people listening began to shriek. They began to cry. They began to weep within the congregation. Individuals began to just, um, man, the Lord just began to do this work so much so that as he's there preaching about sinners in the hands of an angry God, he couldn't finish his sermon. Because all these people were convicted by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the next thing you know, all the leaders and all the pastors were going with all, to all the people as they were all accepting Christ into their heart. You know, I, I, of course, I, I wish that would happen tonight, you know. Maybe all of you are saved, um, but maybe not. Don't leave without Jesus in your heart. What we're talking about today, the judgment of God, the justice of God, the love of God, the cross of Christ, it's all true. None of us have tomorrow guaranteed. So my prayer is that we would give our heart to Christ tonight.